So there seems to be a need at Homestead to conform to a very narrow um, set of patterns that are not necessarily, um, or are they necessarily found in scripture, thus saith the Lord. Uh, why so narrow? Why so specific uh, as far as the way that we live our lives and the way that we um, carry ourselves on a daily basis, the way that we think about community and so on and so forth. So it begs certain things like, like you know, the thought of immediately legalism, the thought of works-based salvation. Um, the What about freedom in Christ? You know, why not just preach these things, preach about modesty and hope for the best kind of thing, as opposed to conforming to a narrow set of patterns in the way that we've, um, we've chosen to do so. So. so the one that you mentioned was modesty. Amen. Well, that's the one that I've heard the most. <laughs> okay. That's, that tends to be the first one that comes out. Amen. Well, and, and it doesn't, so let me just sharpen that a little bit. It doesn't come out like, hey, why are you guys so modest? Right. It comes out, why do you dress that way? Right. Yes. So, just to. Amen. Well, I think that in the broadest sense, we see the community of Christ as a culture, not as individuals with a different heaven plan living in the culture of the world. We really see the community of Christ as a culture. And Max Weber said that a culture is one's lived religion. And so we look at the fruit of a culture surrounding us and we analyze the major changes and developments in that culture and the fruit of those changes. And we recognize broadly that this American culture is far less Christian than it used to be. Would you agree with that? Yes. So in the broadest sense, I think all Christians can concur that we have lost prayer in the schools, we have lost uh, religious freedoms, we have lost morality and standards that used to be the norm. So we, we see this great ebbing away of the culture of Christ. Now, we believe from a biblical standpoint, a political nation could never be the perfect expression of the kingdom of God. So we would balk at the idea that America as a political entity was ever a Christian nation, except in the sense that it was never God's perfect will for a king to rule his people, and yet he allowed it in the same way he allowed it because of their ignorance and he allowed it, uh, yeah, he allowed it because of their ignorance and he used it ultimately. In the same way, a political nation was never God's perfect design. He, he, des he designed a body with a different kind of authority altogether. But nonetheless, we can see that God allowed and used even political realms as places of refuge, as places where the gospel could be spread, as places where morality and the culture of Christ would hang on. And yet we have seen this wholesale betrayal of all Christian values in the culture that surrounds us. And what is so astounding is the betrayal of the church of Christ in their complicity with the surrounding culture. So everything that the church would have frowned on a hundred years ago, they gulp down as the norm now. So there is nothing about what makes us so different or narrow that was not commonplace among all Christians a hundred years ago. But we have refused to be complicit with what is clearly 
the dismantling of Christianity, we have, ref we have refused to rationalize it and explain it away. And we feel that the church who has done that, they are betrayers of Christ. They know better than that. If you go read what they said about the change in dress styles, what ministers of the denominations who criticize us, go read what they said even 50 years ago, yeah. certainly 100 years ago, it would be more strident than anything we would say. But they belong to the world where we want to belong to Christ. We want to belong to a culture that is not of this world. Now, it doesn't mean we don't interface with the world. It doesn't mean we don't love the world in the sense of the people in it. We don't love the world because anybody who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And I've, I've expounded on this in many of these broadcasts, but we believe that the Scripture is clearly showing you cannot have covenant relationship with the Father unless you have separation from the world. He says, come out of her and be separate, says the Lord, and I'll be your Father. One, two, be separate and I'll be your Father. He will not be our Father unless we will separate from the world. And we believe Christians are ashamed of the cross unless they can hide it and be basically indistinguishable from the world. And, you know, you say, why does it have to be so narrow? <laughs> Ask Jesus. He said the way of life is narrow and few find it. And he said the way that leads to destruction is broad and many go in there at. And it's easy, he said. So if it's not narrow and it's not hard, few find it. Now, I resent this tired argument that we endlessly get, though I understand it. I understand it. Is it not legalism? And I've, I've expounded this a couple times, but, you know, there are, there's more than one kind of legalism. But I would say that the broadest definition of legalism for me goes something like this. Legalism tells you the least that you have to do, and love tells you the most that you can do. So legalism is this minimal line and I see legalism in my interaction with the government because I do not pay taxes to the government because I love the government. I pay taxes to the government because I'm legally bound to. And I'm in fear of, you know, breaking the law. I, I pay taxes also because the Lord tells me to. But I don't abide by the speed limit, let's put it that way, because I agree with it, although sometimes I might. I don't do it because I agree with it. I do it because I don't want to get a ticket. That's legalism. And when you approach God as a harsh master, then all you want to understand is what is the bare minimum. And then you do the bare minimum. So I believe that legalism is more widespread in Christianity today among so-called free grace Christians than it has ever been since the Lord came. And I believe Christians want to know what is the least that I have to do in order to get God off my back. Why do I abide by the speed limit to avoid an interaction with the cop. Why do people obey God to, in, to avoid a relationship with God, to avoid an interaction with God? They say, what is the least I have to do in order to be saved? And the church is great at answering that. All you have to do is, you just think honestly, how many times you have heard Christians describe salvation in that construct. All you have to do is now, that construct, let's try that out. Let's test drive that construct on a relationship of love, okay? What if I looked at my spouse that way? What is the least I have to do in order to have 
my wife. I mean, the very question would show that my heart was wrong, that I didn't love this person, that I didn't cherish her, that I didn't appreciate her, that I didn't want to be with her. Do you understand? And if I said, if, if somebody came along and said, all you have to do in order to be married to Rebecca is have a wedding on uh, you know, May 4th, 2007, and say I do. Once married, always married. Walk away and you're set. Then, then if I did that and I stood there and I honestly said I do and then lived as uh, the I don't, um, I would be a hypocrite. I would be a liar, but I would be something else. I would be a legalist because I would have crossed that magical line and then let all the pressure off as if it was settled and done. I would not, as, as the Bible says, press on to know the Lord. I, wouldn't, I would not fear that I was coming short of the grace of God. I, all pressure, all obligation, all growth would cease because I crossed the line and it was done. So I think that the worst kind of legalists are evangelicals. Uh, truly, I think evangelicals are the worst kind of legalists. I'm not saying that they're all that way, but I'm saying the biggest camp of legalists are those who look at God as a problem to solve and they want the most efficient, shortest distance between two points. Get that done, it's settled. Someone who loves the Lord says, I want to change my whole life to conform to this relationship. And now let's use that as, as the counterpoint. So when I got married, I cared about the clothes that I wore more than I ever had before. I wasn't overly conscious of those things, but if she said that I like you in that shirt, I would tend to wear that shirt more. Or if I said to her, oh, honey, that looks really good on you, she would do that. And if she changed her hairstyle and I said, I like that, that looks nice, she'd wear that hairstyle for the rest of forever. Now, why? Because she's a legalist? No. We see that the greatest changes people make come from love, not from obligation. Now, I'm not saying that people can't say things like, if you don't wear your black hat and your curls and all that, you're going to go to hell, and so they do it. I'm not saying it can't be for fear, but you would have to be around us to know that we're not living in that kind of dread. We're living with complete freedom in Christ. Amen. And Paul says, you're free in Christ. We're free from the ceremonial law. We're free from all that stuff. We're free from the law. But he said, don't use your freedom as an occasion for the flesh. Don't use it as a license for the flesh. That is precisely what people use their freedom as, freedom for. And, and, and in the end, they end up betraying their Lord. They end up belonging completely to a culture and a world that hates God and is systematically removing God from every aspect of public life. Amen. And he says, if anyone loves the world or the things of the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He says, be separate and I'll be your father. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, so that you don't receive of her plagues. And this is as old as, as, as uh, Balaam, who was asked to curse God's people, and he couldn't because they were separated. He said, I, I, I see a people set apart. I cannot curse them. So I would say that, you know, why do we have to conform to these things? Why do we have to, why do we insist that, that, that people conform? Well, these things, every single one of them is rooted in scripture and rooted in an awareness of a culture that is a bad tree that can only bear bad fruit. And so 
every single one of them is rooted in Scripture, and every single one of them is rooted. Everything, everything that I'm aware of is rooted, should be rooted in Scripture. And we are saying we have to share convictions here because we want the love of the Father. We want the sanctity that allows for God's presence and glory in our midst. And, and if you want that world, then enjoy that world. But if you want something else, we're going to have to be separate, and we're going to have to remove our love for the, from, for the world that we might have the love of the Father. You know, he says, if whoever seeks to make himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Think of all these scriptures that I'm quoting from James, from 1 John, from 2 Corinthians 6, from uh, Revelations 18. Think of all these scriptures. The Bible does not condone unity with the world. It's preposterous. You, if you are married to Christ and you are one with the world, you are an adulterer. <laughs> and he will separate with you so that he does not make himself one with a harlot, namely you. You have to separate from the world. And this is a virtue. This is a Christian principle that is non-negotiable in church, in Christianity. If your pastor doesn't teach it, shame on him. It is in the Bible. So this, this ethos of separation without condemnation, without hatred, but this ethos of cultural separation is of seminal importance to us. We believe our salvation is tied to it. We don't have the Father's love if we don't embrace separation from the world. And those who, who come at us for being so narrow and so requiring and so conforming, I'm sorry, but they are mostly indistinguishable from the world. I was thinking about in Jude, you know, We'll just go to Jude 1 for the sake of time. Um, but um, so Jude 1, um, you know, he says, I wanted to write to you, beloved. Um, I was eager to write to you about our common salvation. But instead, I found it necessary to write to you appealing for you to contend for the faith that was for once and all delivered to the saints. So here, here what he's saying, he's saying, I wanted to write to you concerning many things that we all share in the Lord. But instead, I felt I had to write to you concerning the faith and, and this is how he says it I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was for once and all delivered to the saints he goes on for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ now, I'll just tell you, does anyone believe that what Jude is talking about is there's a bunch of people who have denied the Lord Jesus by their tongue? No. He's certainly not saying that, right? Titus 1.16, by their words they confess him, but by their deeds they deny him. That's right. So he's saying that they have denied the faith, but they have denied it because they are not, their life is not in accordance with what this gospel would furnish in their life. So let's just back up there for a minute. What he's saying is, is that externals cannot change the heart. Amen. Amen. But once the heart is changed, the externals do change. Amen. Amen. I mean, that's what he's saying. And he's saying when the gospel has taken hold of someone, their whole life is going to be shaped by this new kingdom reality. And he's saying there's someone who's coming in Amen. and they're perverting the word of God and telling them that grace makes it so that these realities being shaped in your heart don't need to furnish the outside of the man. doesn't need to change your externals at all. Amen. Now legalism would be this place standing and saying, or the church, let's say in general, trying to broker salvation 
through a list of external observances. To say, here are a list of external things you can do, and if you do those things, then you are saved. Right. Right? That's called brokering salvation through external observances. That would be legalism. That would be receive circumcision, and now you're a child of God. And yet, when Jesus faced them, he says, you're not sons of Abraham. Why? He says, because you're enslaved. And he says, enslaved? We've not been enslaved. And he says, don't you know to the one and who, to the, to the thing that one obeys, unto that he is enslaved. And he's, he was speaking to them concerning sin. Amen. And so here, let's just fast forward a little bit. Can into, I just, he says, if amen. the law could have brought about righteousness, amen. there would have been no need for grace. Amen. And he said, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Amen. And he says that legalism has the appearance of righteousness, but he said it's of no value against the flesh. So the reason the law and legalism is no good is because it's not lethal enough against the flesh. It doesn't actually solve the problem. Amen. So in Timothy chapter 2, Paul is writing to Timothy and he's telling them to the church of Ephesus that Timothy needs to make sure that he continues to establish the patterns that he has put into the church. He says that there were forms or patterns that he clearly laid out as a father of that church, as one who laid the groundwork and the foundational work. And he says, Timothy, I want to make sure that you establish those patterns. Now listen to what he says when he goes to encourage me. He says, I desire that in every place, he's told him how to keep these standards, these patterns in place. He says, I desire that in every place, the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling, Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves with respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with the braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So let me ask you, if in the letter of Jude, the writer says there's going to come some who are going to pervert the grace of God and tell you that it gives you a license to do whatever it is that you want to do. Well, wouldn't the question to the churches today not be why are women dressing in according to the pattern that Paul laid out in Scripture, namely with respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control? Wouldn't the question be what is the allowance that you guys feel that you have to dress the way that you dress? Because the Scripture clearly says that this is not the way that those who have been born again of God's Spirit should outwardly adorn themselves. Why is the Spirit of God not informing you that to dress in an immodest way is to violate the very gospel that you say saves you? And you say, "Well, well, how is dressing modestly consistent with the gospel? Well, couldn't you ask Paul the same thing when just a few chapters later in chapter 5, he says this, He says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Couldn't, wouldn't you ask him to say, wait, 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 Paul, you're saying that just by not providing for my household, that in doing that, I've actually denied the faith. I never said I didn't believe in Jesus. I know, but your life says that he no longer possesses your heart. If he did, then the externals would be changing. Namely, you would feel the responsibility of care for those in your household. And he goes, but by not doing that, you're denying the faith. 
and I mean, worse what, than an unbeliever, which is unsaved. That that's right. And and in Titus, he goes on. This will be a little bit uh, interesting for some. In chapter two, he says, "But as for you." Teach what accords with sound doctrine. You go, finally, let's get into some doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-control, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not slanders or slaves to too much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children and to be self-controlled pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. He goes, Titus, lay out the patterns that I gave you for the church. And here is the sound doctrine that you need to lay out to them. Here we go. What is it? How we relate one with one another. How we're supposed to adorn ourselves. How we're supposed to behave. How we're supposed to be this light unto the nations. In fact, he closes that whole section saying that the grace of God did not appear so that everyone could do whatever they wanted. The grace of God appeared so we would renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And we would live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life in this present age. And he goes on, he says, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke Titus with all authority and let no one disregard you. When's the last time you heard an evangelical church, a minister stand up and with all authority say, I want to bring you the sound doctrine of the gospel. Namely, we got to change the way we dress. We got to change the way we're treating one another. We got to change the way we honor and dishonor one another. And yet Paul says when the church needs to get back to its moorings and find its identity again, it's because it's lost the patterns of how we express ourselves externally. So we would all agree externals can't change someone, but we would all agree that once changed inwardly, externally, we're going to live completely differently. Amen. 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 I'm just thinking of Romans 12. That's, that's, I forgot that passage. That's the passage I was thinking. He says, listen, listen to the language in light of what Brother Zach is ministering. He says, uh, you know, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. So, Present yourselves holy and acceptable to God. Next words, and do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be legalists for Christ. No, no, he says, but be transformed. So the way you break conformity to Babylon is through inner transformation. Be transformed and you won't conform to the patterns of this world. If you conform to the patterns of this world, you are not transformed. If you if you're you can clean the outside of the cup and the inside may be filthy, but if you clean the inside, the outside will be clean also. If you deal with the heart, if you deal with spiritual inner transformation, you will break conformity to the patterns of this world. And so I'm, I'm I just want to bring it since modesty seems to be the, the hot button here. You ask yourself, where in all of America? you could have found one Christian who is accepted to dress the way Christians dress today, a hundred years ago. And you ask yourself, did the Holy Spirit change that pattern? Because that's a pattern now. Or did the world change that pattern? And if you conform to that pattern of the world, ask yourself, is it because you are not transformed on the inside? You don't understand what it's all about. You don't understand who has betrothed you, who your husband is, what holiness is, even external holiness. It's not a matter of freedom in Christ. 
We, we are free, but we are slaves of righteousness, Paul said. Amen. That's what he tells us in Romans 6. Amen. And he says that, he says that, sla that, that, that obedience leads to righteousness. So there are times when it's not inside, but if we'll obey, God will help it get there. It doesn't mean that we can't do things for the wrong reason or have the right look but have the wrong heart. Sure. But if we let God transform us, we're going to break conformity to worldly patterns. Listen to Paul's appeal in Philippians. In Philippians, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. Amen. Do you hear what he says? He says, listen, there's a lot of things going on in the church that are very confusing right now. He says, listen, watch he says, he says, join in imitating my life and keep an eye on those who are doing likewise, who are doing the example. Listen to what he goes on to say. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, how are they walking as enemies? Verse 19, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their, they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Yet again, he's, he's describing that here, here are those who are hostile to the word of the cross. Amen. And he goes, it's not because they're preaching against the cross. It's because their lifestyle contradicts everything that the cross stands for. So he says, listen, please imitate me and keep your eye on those who are doing likewise, because there's people that are coming in here and they're unwinding the whole message of the cross by their lifestyle. Amen. Amen. I find it interesting also that you, you went to Timothy and you went to Titus um, and you talked about imitating Paul. And in both of those books, Paul says to Timothy, a true son in the faith. Amen. And to Titus, a true son in our common faith. Amen. In other words, a true son is that uh, who would actually hear what I have to say and do it, Amen. who I can trust to go lay these patterns out for a people. Amen. So I don't think this is wasted. I think it's worth just touching on this from this Romans 12 passage yes. of being conformed, um, not being conformed to the world, but transformed through the renewing of your mind that you'd be able to approve what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This growing in your discernment of that which is pleasing. Isn't it interesting that in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says that he has this ministry of reconciliation. Yes. And he says that he, he implores them, we implore you, he says, to be reconciled. Now, first of all, can we all agree that he's writing to a group of believers Amen. in the church of Corinth? And yet he says, look, I'm imploring you, I, I'm imploring you, please be reconciled unto God. He's not talking about some evangelistic ministry that's out there telling a bunch of atheists, please come, you know, Jesus. He says, I'm imploring you, the church, to be reconciled unto him. It's interesting, he says, because he died for you, that in him you all might become the righteousness of God. Now, this is an interesting idea. He says, listen, I'm imploring you to be reconciled, namely that all the enemies that are hostile towards the kingdom of God that reside in each one of us be reconciled be, be, be removed and you be wholly placed into the design and pattern that God had for you. And he says, because in doing so, you will bring righteousness on this whole earth. It, isn't that true? Isn't that what Zion, he says, I will not keep silent. I will not hold my tongue for, for Jerusalem or for Zion's sake until what? Her righteousness goes forth. 
Amen. Until her righteousness goes forth as the dawn, her salvation as a burning torch. I mean, his appeal there is saying that, listen, Zion is going to bring the righteousness of God on so the earth. So you're saying when he says be reconciled, this is, this is interesting. You're saying what, when he says be reconciled to God, to believers, what he's saying is internally reconcile yourself by removing what is in opposition to the submission to the to Christ. Is Amen. that is that fair? It, it is because the next chapter Paul makes this appeal, you guys cannot be unequally yoked. Right. You guys are yoking yourselves with that which is unclean. Right. And in doing so, you cannot become the temple of God that God designed. Yeah. So therefore, come out from the unclean, Amen. and then you will be his people, and he will be your God. And then he says, therefore, since we have this promise, chapter 7, he says, therefore, since we have this promise, let us remove every defilement of body and spirit and bring holiness, which is set apartness into completion in the fear of God. Yes. He's saying, look, you know, don't you see if God's going to reconcile everything unto himself and bring righteousness on the earth through a people? He goes, then I implore you with this message of reconciliation, come out from the unclean, set yourself apart unto the Lord, and he will dwell in your midst, Amen. and he will bring his righteousness to the ends of the earth. That's his, that's his appeal. Amen. And without holiness, without that set apartness, no Amen. one will see the Lord. Amen. If, 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 the, if the culture that you're in is appealing to the vanities of this world and to the incitement of the flesh, that is literally trying to bring a Garden of Eden situation time and time again where a forbidden fruit is being held in front of the eyes that says it's pleasing to the eyes, it's good for the body, it's able to make one wise. If the church is bringing forth that fruit to the world, then how great is the darkness? Yeah. I mean, what hopelessness is in on this earth if the church, the only thing she has to offer is the same temptation that plunged us all into the despair in which we find ourselves. The church is instead offering, saying, refuse that fruit. It will not satisfy you. And look at the simplicity of life and devotion in Christ and commitment of brotherhood and sisters. Look at the family of God and the wholeness and life that comes from that and see her salvation burn like a torch till it covers the whole earth. That's yeah. the church. Amen. That's God's plan to save and to transform this broken world. Amen. Amen.